Meaningless. Meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, speech like that you may come to expect from someone, say, like the existentialist philosopher Albert Camus, or maybe Rick Sanchez, the fictional character in the animated program Rick and Morty. But it's not the sort of speech you expect to get from the Bible, is it? This is what makes Ecclesiastes so perplexing. It's a book that has befuddled Christians for millennia. And one of our listeners and Patreon supporters, Nathan, asked a great question about the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm Paul Anleitner, and I want to welcome you to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning-making. Today is another Q&A episode. Today's question comes from Nathan, one of our Patreon supporters. Nathan asked this excellent question about the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to do a deep dive into Ecclesiastes today. Here's Nathan's question. I have questions about Ecclesiastes. Specifically, I feel like the book is deconstructing typical places we find meaning, naming it all as meaningless. The problem I have is that I feel like it doesn't give a solid positive construction of meaning afterwards, only somewhat hinting at it in the last verses. I'm a Christian, but even still, I often struggle with the idea that everything is meaningless. If you have any thoughts on this, I would greatly appreciate it. Nathan. Nathan, first of all, even before we start unpacking and getting into this book, I just want to affirm that even I, as a Christian, as someone in been in vocational ministry my essentially my entire adult life, someone that is a pastor, I too often struggle with the idea that everything is meaningless. So first of all, I appreciate you even just saying that because for some reason or another, Christians, we often struggle in confessing our weakness and confessing that we struggle at times with a sense of insignificance or sense of meaningless as we try to make sense of the world and these experiences that we have. And I think it's important that we do voice that. And I'm thankful that you have. And I want to affirm, there's many days I feel the same way. I feel like this teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes begins by saying, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Is Nathan's suspicions right? That all that Ecclesiastes does is merely deconstruct all of the things that we think have meaning in the world simply to leave us empty and bare with no way to positively reconstruct a new path forward? It's a good question. In today's episode, we're going to explore the book of Ecclesiastes and try to answer Nathan's question. Biblical scholars give us reason to believe, based on the pattern of speech and language used in the book of Ecclesiastes, that this book was written down, or at the very least, the final edit of the book was compiled in the late 6th century BC. And just as we did in the last episode with the question another Patreon member had about the book of Corinthians, uh, I believe that was Sam, Sam asked this great question about Corinthians. Just as we started in that episode by exploring the historical and contextual theology, we need to do the same thing here for Ecclesiastes. 
With Ecclesiastes being dated in the late 6th century, again, it could be that this was, you know, it's the, the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes attributes it to, uh, though without ever using his name, it attributes it to Solomon. And, you know, so some may believe that these were at one point the, the musings of Solomon passed down. And that, that could be the case, which far more likely, though, is that this was a book that was written down, or at least the final edit happened just after the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, when Israel has entered into their period of Babylonian captivity, potentially even later as well, just based on the, the pattern of speech and the language used in the book. It's consistent with that time period, and it wouldn't be consistent with earlier time periods in the way that Hebrew language was structured and patterns of speech. So, you know, we can pick up these sorts of things. I had a friend recently uh, recite to me, <laughs> share with me that he had uh, bits and pieces of um, something from Shakespeare memorized, but it was from, you know, the proper Shakespearean English. And he recited it to me, and I, I, I didn't understand a word he was saying, even though it was technically in English. And if I were to compare his, my, our present uh, methods of communicating in this English tongue in the year 2020 in the Midwest, in the United States, if I were to compare that to uh, you know, Shakespearean English in, from the medieval period, I'd be able to clearly identify differences. So that's kind of how biblical scholars are able to identify that and to provide it with the dating that it has. Now, again, that doesn't rule out the possibility that some of these nuggets may have come from Solomon and they were passed down. Um, but it's also far more likely because we actually see evidence of this in other ancient Near Eastern texts, which uh, have a similar pattern of this sort of wisdom literature, that it wouldn't have been uncommon for this type of story to begin by claiming someone of significance as the authoritative voice. In this case, you can't get more authoritative in issues of wisdom than Solomon. Um, and so that's one possibility too. But the important part about the dating of this is to help us understand the existential crisis that this book and the original readers of this book, more than likely really the original listeners to this book, would have been going through and experiencing. There's this horrific, and we can't underestimate the amount of trauma that the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC by Nebuchadnezzar and the, the hauling off of the, those who remained into Babylonian captivity, how much of a devastating effect this had on Israel in Israel's sense of purpose and meaning, their sense of significance. And we're going to talk in a little bit about maybe some of the differences between, behind the meanings of those terms, like purpose and significance. But this crisis of meaning resulting from, quote, and I believe this, this is from Craig Bartholomew, who's got a great commentary on the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, quote, the demise of the great Israelite experiment. And this, this great Israelite experiment was this, this idea of this nation, this truly one nation under God. You know, I know that's in our, uh, 
you know, our, our pledge of allegiance, but you know, we that is more applicable to how Israel saw themselves. I guess you know, as Americans and many many Americans see themselves that way, and the American story that way. But for Israel, that really was the case. This was a nation birthed out of God's liberation, God's liberating them from bondage in slavery in Egypt, and and giving them a, a a place to live, a land flowing with milk and honey, and making them a nation uh, intended to be a royal priesthood to the rest of the nations. And they had a clear sense of purpose in the story of human history. And Yahweh was their God, and they were Yahweh's people. And the promise was, I will be your God, you be my people, you follow in my ways, and I will protect you. I will care for you. You will be, you know, there's imagery in the Old Testament of, of Yahweh as the groom and Israel as the bride, right? We see that throughout the prophets. And what happens when Nebuchadnezzar comes in and sacks the city, destroys the temple, the temple that Solomon had built, it destroys the very place where you believe the presence of God resided. And now you're off in some foreign land, maybe your family members. You know, if this was several generations after, right, maybe maybe your great-grandparents were killed in that horrific siege of Jerusalem. And you're living in some foreign land as a captive. In, in, in encountering total culture shock, what some psychologists and behavior, behavioral scientists call domicide, like dom, the root there meaning home, and, and you've lost your sense of home and identity. And the Israelites are living in, again, this is to quote uh, Craig Bartholomew and his commentary on Ecclesiastes, this, this experience left the Israelites living in, quote, in a period when Yahweh's promises seemed to have come to nothing, end quote. So what was happening during this period, and we're in the late 6th century, maybe early 7th century, there's a temptation arising among educated Jews who are, who are now living in Babylonian captivity. We've already, uh, you know, if this was a later dating, which some scholars do argue, we we feel fairly confident that there is this is happening in Babylonian captivity. When we don't know, but we know at the very earliest it couldn't be earlier than the late sixth century, based on language. But let's say, even as some scholars suggest, you know, we are multiple generations even away, and this is still fresh in your consciousness. And what's beginning to happen is that some of the Jewish people are obviously becoming acclimated to their new, um, the culture, the culture that they are now surrounded in. And they're, they're embracing, perhaps, if we're several generations away, so we go from Babylonians to Persians to Greek overlords, you know, wherever it was at in that time period, Hellenism had begun to spread. Maybe there's Greek modes of thought, Greek modes of thought that were some of our more educated Jews were beginning to embrace, right? That were, that were placing emphasis on observation and reason, these Greek ideas over the traditional stories of God and his redemptive activity in the world and his sovereignty over the nations and his sovereignty over Israel. Maybe some of them are 
being tempted to pursue new modes of thinking and trying to pursue new modes of meaning as it seems like the previous story, the previous meta narrative that they believed doesn't seem to have afforded them as a people a better place in life. What good has believing this story done there in captivity, their homeland has been laid to waste, right? So you can see this is a massive meaning crisis. And we've talked about in this podcast numerous numerous times this, this phrase meaning crisis and that we may be in one today presently in the Western world. But these, it's important for us to see that these meaning crises are cyclical. They've happened throughout history to various peoples and at various places. And Israel, at the time in which Ecclesiastes is finally composed, is in the middle of a serious existential meaning crisis. God's covenant with Israel, as Israel understood it, is under question. By and large part, Israel believed that God's covenant with them operated under something that we've referred to before as, if you go back to the episode we did on the book of Job at the beginning of our Problem of Evil series, and side note, I do plan on coming back and and wrapping up that series. There's so many other uh, episodes to still cover, but we were taking a break to answer some questions here. If you go back to that episode, we talked about this concept in the ancient Near Eastern world that we call the retribution principle, or as um, biblical scholars John Walton and Tremper Longman III called it like the great symbiosis. Israel largely believed and understood that God's covenant with them operated under the same retribution principles as many other ancient Near Eastern peoples thought their gods interacted with them about. Again, remember back to our Job episode that, again, in most of the ancient world, people believed that they had been created to provide for the gods. Now, this was something that was different about Israel, but much of Israel's neighbors believed the gods made you because the gods have need. And what do they need? Well, they need food, like sacrifices. They need drink, like drink offerings. They need a place to stay, like a temple. They need clothing and all of this other stuff. And, and this gave a narrative purpose to hum, human existence in the ancient Near Eastern world. It provided a purpose to humanity. Humanity's purpose was to care for the needs of the gods. Now, Israel, though they are an ancient Near Eastern people, God's revelation to them is, is communicating that through their cultural lens. And it's providing some variations, uh, some progressions away from the common ancient Near Eastern idea, but still, in large part, the liturgical practices of Israel were uh, reflective of this. So it's not that they had to care for God or provide for God, but what they saw as meaningful is an act of worship and liturgical practice to God was we're going to bring sacrifices. We're going to bring food and drink offerings. We're going to, this was why David's had this idea in his, um, during his kingship and administration, David had the idea first about building God a temple and God said, no, right? You've killed too many dudes, man. I don't want your bloody hands building my temple. That's my paraphrase. And then his son Solomon does it. 
we might go, that's really weird. Why would David have this idea that God needs a house? Well, it's because that was the normative way, the normative cultural way that people thought. And remember, Samuel said, well, God doesn't live in a house, you know, he doesn't need your your temple, but that's still a nice idea. Let's do it. I, we appreciate. <laughs> God appreciates the sincerity of your offering. So this was the way that people thought in that ancient Near Eastern world, the gods need you and the gods will protect and provide for you, provided you hold up your end of the deal, which is to provide food and protection. There's a modification of this retribution principle in Israel's story. It's not so much that God requires of you to bring him food, to bring him a house. That's not the case, though God uses some of those practices to help Israel have meaningful expressions of worship. For Yahweh, it is, I have a way for you to live in the world, and I have a vocational call for you as a people. And provided that you hold up your end of the vocational call, I will care for you. Think back to even Joshua. I set before you life and death. Choose life. So this is the way that Israel thought. Now, what are you going to do when you're an individual? Now, certainly we can see in the prophets, and we can even see in Israel's history, that Israel did not follow God. God's ways. He, they did not follow the Torah. They didn't follow the law all the time. So certainly one school of thought among people who were in Babylonian captivity reflecting on this were to go, see, we messed up. We didn't hold up our end of the deal. And that's why we're in the situation where we're at. We're in this point in time in history where we feel like we've been abandoned by God, but we our abandonment is self-inflicted because we didn't follow the prophet's warnings. We didn't listen to Jeremiah. We didn't listen to Isaiah. We didn't listen to Moses. And this is why we're getting what we deserve. Now, up against that, there's also that there's also another part of the inspired dialogue that's happening as people are processing this meaning crisis. And we see that reflected in books like Job, and Ecclesiastes. Remember back to Job, where in Job, the message that we can derive from Job was your suffering that you experience isn't a direct cause of your, isn't directly caused by your own sin. That was clearly one of the key takeaways from the book of Job was that Job was the most righteous dude you could think of. He hadn't done anything wrong, even when all the stuff hit the fan and his kids are dying and his He's losing all of his possessions. God says Job didn't sin in that. He didn't do anything wrong. And yet, still, these terrible things are happening to him. That was to counterbalance the, the maybe overly simplistic explanation that you, who are in captivity, maybe you've been really, really faithful. Maybe you've been faithful. Maybe your parents and your grandparents were faithful to God and his ways. Maybe they, as individuals, or even as a family, followed the covenant. And here you are still in captivity in this hellhole in Babylon or wherever you may be. Well, what about me, right? What about that person, that family that says, I did it. Like I followed the stuff. I followed the pattern. Like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. I did all the stuff. 
What else do I need to do? And this is where it's really helpful to have Job and Ecclesiastes enter the conversation, lest we fall into overly simplistic understandings of why Israel's in captivity and for the more relevant point to your life, the applications that this has to us today, which it does have, and we're going to get to. Ecclesiastes begins by introducing us to someone simply referred to as the teacher. Now, at the end of Ecclesiastes 1, it says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. Right? This is clearly um, an, an inference to Solomon. And as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, right, it says at the beginning too, the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. You know, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, the this particular genre, this particular writing uh, in this wisdom literature vein was not uncommon in the ancient Near Eastern world as people like Tremper Longman III bring up. So we need not think that these necessarily is literally that this was words written down by Solomon himself. Instead, this is again more of like a thought experiment to say, let's imagine the wisest person who ever lived. And in Israel's history, the wisest person they can think of is Solomon. And what what does this wise teacher have to show us? Maybe some of these things did come from Solomon, but you know, that that's kind of missing the point, right? So Ecclesiastes 1 begins here by introducing us to someone that we're just going to simply refer to throughout the rest of this podcast as the teacher. What is the teacher trying to do? What do we see this teacher doing throughout Ecclesiastes? The teacher, Ecclesiastes is primarily about this teacher trying to find some sense of coherence. That is, trying to find a predictable pattern of repeatability to life. And this is a wonderful insight, uh, a great paper that uh, when I was doing my research um, in the Harvard Theological Review from Dr. Arthur Kiefer, who is a theologian, did his PhD at Cambridge, had a wonderful article um, bringing out some of the terminology I'm using today. As Kiefer brings up, he sees this pattern here throughout Ecclesiastes of the author, uh, of the teacher looking in life, looking throughout reality, and, and trying to discern, is there a predictable pattern of repeatability to life? We could call this a sense of coherence. Is this retribution principle in particular? Now, the ancient Israelites wouldn't call it that. I'm just using these terms to help us maybe boil down a lot of big ideas into simple to describe concepts. Is, for the ancient Israelite, is the retribution principle foolproof? Is it a coherent universal? Or if we prefer to maybe frame it in maybe even more modern terminology, though I guess this is technically a really old word, is karma a coherent universal pattern to life? Remember, if you read the rest of the Old Testament poetry and wisdom books, you're going to get some interesting perspectives on this retribution principle or karma. You're going to get some perspectives that make it seem like 
the retribution principle works every single time, that the entire cosmos is governed by the retribution principle, that this is the way God has set up the, the, the structure of reality to function, that people get what they deserve. You reap what you sow. You plant uh, a mustard seed, and you're, you're going to get this tree, right? You plant uh, an acorn in the ground. They wouldn't have acorns in the ancient Near East. Uh, if you plant, plant a, an acorn in the ground, you're going to get this tree, right? This is, this is the retribution principle. If you're good, good things will come to you. If you're bad, bad things will come to you. If, again, in a religious context, if you care for what God, the gods care for, for the ancient Near Eastern people, the gods will care for you. For Israel, if you follow God's covenant, the covenant will keep you and protect you. God's covenant to you will be protected, so don't break the contract. As we read the Old Testament poetry and wisdom books, we, it's important that we read all of these together together. Because anyone, whether it's Ecclesiastes or Proverbs or Psalms, we can include many of the Psalms in the wisdom category, though it's poetry. The poetry and wisdom books can kind of go together. We read any one of these in isolation. We might not see the totality of what the inspired library of Scripture is attempting to communicate. So let's take, for example, Psalms. Much of Psalms seem to rely on God coherently governing the world. So coherence, again, is a predictable pattern of reliability. Much of the Psalms seem to rely on God coherently governing the world, according to the retribution principle. David, you know, says stuff like, and this is a paraphrase, right? This isn't, this would be a really crude Psalm, but <laughs> David says stuff like, I'm righteous, but all these unrighteous people want to kill me. Life isn't going good right now, but I still trust you're going to swoop in and save the day and kill all of these idiots who are plotting against me. <laughs> There's so many Psalms that go like that. They start off by like, woe is me. I've been really, really righteous. I'm the good guy. Those bad guys out there, they're out to kill me. God, where are you? I feel left alone. I feel abandoned, but I know because in essence, I get this retribution principle works. I get this is the way the world functions. You are going to come in and you're going to save the day because I'm righteous. They're bad guys. That's how it works, right? The righteous will enjoy God's presence and its accompanying benefits. The wicked will forfeit the presence of God and will suffer the consequences of abandonment. That's how Tremper Longman and John Walton paraphrase, paraphrase what many of the, me of the Psalms' messages are. Right? Many of what we hear David singing about, if we were to imagine him singing these, is this, right? Again, quoting Walton and Longman, that, quote, the righteous will enjoy God's presence and its accompanying benefits. The wicked will forfeit the presence of God and will suffer the consequences of abandonment. Right? Retribution. You're righteous, you get God's presence and all the perks. You're wicked. You're going to forfeit God's presence, and you're going to get the consequences that come with abandonment. If we look at Proverbs, Proverbs might seem to be the most supportive of the retribution principle or karma or whatever you want to call it, being the thing that God governs the world with. And in doing so, it bolsters support for how the law God gave to Israel works. It's the sort of 
I set before you life and death, so don't be an idiot. Choose life principles, right? You know, here's, here's some examples of how to choose life. Work hard. Don't be lazy. Don't be dumb. Marry that Proverbs 31 kind of woman, right? And again, in general, these normative guidelines for life work. In general, right? There's a higher probability of the stated action in the Proverbs happening than any of the other possible alternatives. It's probabilistically normative. You're most likely, if you work hard and you're wise with your money, to not be poor. That That's normative, right? So Proverbs are providing the normative guide, and it operates around the retribution principle or karma, you know... Marry that Proverbs 31 woman and you're going to be more happy than marrying the woman that, what's, what's another Proverbs, you know, the, the, the woman that makes you want to go stand on top of your house? What is that Proverbs? I got to look that one up. What is it again? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pro- Proverbs, Proverbs 21, Proverbs 21, 9, right? That's the proverb. Better to live on a corner of the roof than to share a house with a quarrelsome wife or, you know, um... Proverbs 21, 19 uh, says, better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife, right? Well, it's like generally true. <laughs> you know? rather not have that. And, you know, women could say the same thing. They'd rather not be in the house than be with a jerk husband, right? So Proverbs is supportive of this retribution principle because it does seem to be the normative guidelines for how life works. There's a higher probability that if you follow this, that you're going to get this result than any of the other possible alternatives. But then comes these books that are a bit more troubling, like Job and Ecclesiastes, which go, hey, 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 whoa, hang on, look around, Uh, Psalms, Proverbs, what you're telling us doesn't seem to be completely coherent. This doesn't seem to be the pattern of predictability 100% of the time. Look around. I mean, you see righteous people suffer. You see people who have lived righteous, godly lives their whole life, and then they get smitten by some terrible disease, or they go bankrupt, they get sick. person gets in a car accident and dies, and man, they were such a good person, or, you know... Job and Ecclesiastes make us think about the terrible incidents of school shootings and how in the world could a kindergartner ever be deserving of that? What did he do wrong or she do wrong? And Job tells us nothing, right? Job tells us that kid did nothing wrong. Now, Job isn't about school shootings. You get that. But I'm saying the once we actually properly understand the contextual meaning of Job, one very likely explanation or at least application we can take away is that not everybody suffers because they've done something wrong. Human beings' wickedness can—this is quoting um, Walton and Longman in their uh, book on Job—human beings' wickedness cannot be inferred when they are suffering, nor— can their righteousness be inferred when they are prospering? Think of those marauding marauding tribes that came in and stole Job's stuff. A lot of those guys became really, really rich, right? They were prospering. 
off of Job's suffering, which happens to be the case. And when we look around, how many people are right, how many people are prospering off of the suffering of others? It seems to be a common feature of our present day civilization. So we can't assume simply because someone is enjoying comfort and health and wellness and they're rich and they're loaded and they have a yacht that they are righteous. That was the message of Job. The retribution principle does not govern God. The retribution principle doesn't work 100% of the time. It's not karma running the universe. It's God. Now, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is focused on something different than Job, slightly different, though there's some overlap and there's some, there's some shared purpose in both of these books. The teacher of Ecclesiastes is primarily focused on highlighting the statistical irregularities in the retribution principle. As he's searching for coherence in the patterns of life, he struggles to find any comprehensible pattern. He looks around and he goes, okay, you know, I'm, this is a paraphrase. I'm paraphrasing this here for us. If the retribution principle works, if righteous people get what they deserve, if everybody gets what they deserve, righteous people get wealth and health and happy, wonderful lives and wicked people get wickedness heaped upon them, I, I should be able to survey the landscape of reality and I should be able to find coherence I should be able to find this as the consistent, repeatable pattern of life. But as the teacher of Ecclesiastes highlights, that's not the case. And then he goes on as, as Nathan, our Patreon member who brought up the original question. As he goes on, he he's, begins to deconstruct. He's, he is deconstructing. There's a deconstructing of the universality of the... Retribution principle. He's deconstructing karma as effectively being the coherent pattern in the structure structure of reality. So he goes through. Here's a, here's an example. Here's an example. Here's another example. Here's another irregularity in the pattern of coherence. As British theologian Arthur Kiefer highlights in that excellent paper I've already referred to on Ecclesiastes in the Harvard Theological Review, there's been considerable attention given to what constitutes an experience of life as meaningful. This has been a project of philosophers, theologians, but not just the philosophers and theologians, in more recent times among psychologists and behavioral scientists attempting to figure out what are the sort of psychological criteria which give us a sense of experiencing life as meaningful. Emerging out of some of these recent psychological studies, notably, most notably the work by Dr. Frank Martella and Dr. Michael Stagger, our, our sense of meaning could be divided into three subcategories. These categories are coherence, purpose, and significance. Coherence, purpose, and significance. So as, as we endeavor in our meaning-making experience to interpret, to read the world, to make sense of our experiences, to what constitutes a meaningful life may be subdivided into three categories. 
that provide us with a an internal sense of meaning. Again, those categories are coherence, purpose, and significance. Coherence refer, refers to our ability to cognitively comprehend life via predictable and recognizable patterns. When we look around, when we observe our experiences of reality, we attempt to find patterns that would provide some sort of coherent repeatability, right? We do this all the time, whether it's in music or math or in science, we are looking for predictable and recognizable patterns that are coherent. And our ability to cognitively comprehend life via predictable and recognizable patterns gives us a sense that life has coherence to it. And that's an important, very, very important part of our sense of meaning. Purpose, the second subcategory, denotes a sense that, that life has an overarching goal or a telos. So life has purpose if it has a goal, if it's going in a particular direction, if it's going towards a goal or a telos. Finally, significance then refers to our individual sense of value and worth in life. Again, these categories, these subcategories in our meaning-making systems are interdependent and they, they can't be completely separated from each other. But breaking these down into subcategories can be really, really helpful. Be helpful in helping us try to understand what are the, what are the necessary ingredients that we can name in our meaning-making journey. One sense of purpose, their sense of awareness of the overarching telos of life can give one a sense of significance to the degree that they're participating in the movement towards the goal. So let's say, if we're again to keep these three subcategories, help us give us these categories that give us a sense of meaning, we might be able to say, I know life's purpose. Life's purpose is blah, yada, 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 name that thing, right? And you go, it has a clear overarching telos, right? I, I know what life's purpose is. That is not the same thing as significance. We experience significance to the degree that we sense we are participating in the movement towards the purposeful goal. Someone might have a clear sense of life's purpose, but may be frustrated at their inability to actualize that purpose. This is common for so many people. This is common for many Christians. I think this is maybe part of the experience that maybe I don't want to I don't want to suggest this is what Nathan was referring to in his question, but maybe it is. I don't know. We, I could, we could talk more about it, Nathan. <laughs> Even for many Christians that that know like the maybe the biblical meta story. And they can tell you the four phases of the Christian story, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration or consummation, however you want to call that fourth phase. And they go, you know, the telos is that. It's the redemption and the purpose of life and existence is to head towards the eschatological rule and a reign of God. And we might have all the right propositional knowledge and information, and yet we might feel totally insignificant. Even though we might know the purpose, we might feel totally insignificant. And we might even say that that insignificance 
gives us a sense of meaninglessness to our own life. You can know that overarching purpose and be totally frustrated at your inability to actualize or to participate in that purpose in a way that seems like you as an individual are doing anything significant to contribute it, contribute to it. And our inability to actualize that purpose or to find a way in which we individually participate in that way, in, some, in that purpose, in some meaningful way, leads us to a sense of meaninglessness and despair. One of the barriers, one significant barrier to one's sense of meaning that is common, and again, many of you are uh, people that I know you're listening in, more people listen to this podcast that are Christian, that are people that don't identify as that. So I, I speak to you as Christians. It's okay to confess that sometimes, even though you know the story you feel like you know the overarching purpose to life, that you f still feel a sense in which your individual life, you can't figure out how it has meaning. And one of the barriers for people is the division between one's propositional beliefs and the purpose of all of history and life. And by propositional, I mean Here's proposition A, here's proposition B. Do you agree with that? Do you give cognitive assent to those things? I might go, yes, I, give, I, I believe that to be true. I give cognitive assent to these propositions. Proposition A, God loves you and has a plan for your life, right? You, and, you know, or some propositional belief that uh, Christ is going to return and there's going to be a new heavens and new earth, and that's, that's the purpose and direction of all life. Or you might grab from the Westminster Catechism Catechism, which asks, you know, starts by asking the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And you might, you might have propositional knowledge of and beliefs about the purpose of history and life. And yet, in your own individual sense. You, you, you might feel a sense of frustration that you can't find a way as an individual to participate that, participate in that in any significant way. And there's a huge difference between those two, between the propositional beliefs we might have and the active participation of the totality of our being with a particular way of the world. And and we feel a sense of meaninglessness because we can't find individual significance in participating in this way. This, this barrier is often created by an inability to find coherence in life, to find a repeatable pattern. So I might think life has a purpose, but I can't discern any intelligible pattern by which I can either A, actually participate in the purpose in a way that affects the whole, or B, I can't find enough evidence of coherence to suggest that my existence matters in the slightest, right? So I can say, you know, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I mean, would God be fine with one less person to do that? <laughs> like, knowing that, um, it's helpful it's helpful in a sense as a, as a proposition. It does give 
a sense of purpose. But for my sense of significance, I go, okay, can I contribute to that in any way, shape, or form? Right, and this is where you know some of the classical theism, the definitions about uh, what God's uh, fundamental nature is like, leads people to a sense of insignificance because they hear things like, not only is you know a God all powerful, but he can't he can't be affected by any uh, creature. Nothing can affect him. Nothing moves him, and. You know, I'm not arguing for or against that, but I would say there are certain propositions that people have about God that lead them to a sense of insignificance because they feel like, as an individual, they they can't find a discernible pattern by which they could participate in that. They can't find enough evidence to suggest that their participation in that purpose does anything to affect the whole of the story at all. And, and that's a big problem. Or in some cases, again, they can't find enough evidence of coherence to the purpose that they've been told to make sense of their existence. The inability to find coherence in the structure of reality is a much deeper problem, right? If you have a clear sense of purpose and now you're just struggling to find your your significance within that purpose, that's certainly a problem. I don't want to minimize it. But it's a far worse problem if you cannot find any coherence in the very structure of reality. There's no repeatable pattern. There's no discernible way to even read it. It seems like gobbledygook. It's nonsense. Not only, if that's the case, not only can one lose their sense of significance but one can lose their trust in any general purpose to life at all. It's the threat of an incoherent universe that the teacher of Ecclesiastes is tackling. Now, just because Job and the teacher in Ecclesiastes show us that the retribution principle doesn't work all the time, does that mean that the totality of our experience in the universe is utterly incoherent? Are there no patterns by which we can understand how we are to live, what the purpose and our own individual significance is? Is the universe completely and utterly incoherent? Consider Ecclesiastes 8.14. There's something else meaningless that occurs on the earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. By attributing authorship to the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, the teacher is being honest in his admission that the coherence of the retribution principle we see in Proverbs, again, another book traditionally attributed to Solomon, doesn't seem to universally hold up. It's like, imagine being that ancient Israelite, hearing this, and you're going, well, Solomon Proverbs, he said, you know, he said that people that work hard become rich. (laughs) You know, people that work hard, that live righteous moral lives are blessed and they're prosperous. But yet, here's Solomon saying that the righteous, I see the righteous get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. Which one is it? (laughs) Here in Ecclesiastes, we see that good behavior and reward don't always correlate. 
where are the patterns of predictability that could provide me with a map of meaning to navigate the world, to find purpose and significance? Seems like throughout Ecclesiastes, the teacher is pointing, deconstructing, he's pointing to this and that and going, see, it doesn't add up, the math doesn't add up. Behavior X should produce result X in the world. But it doesn't here. 2 plus 2 equaling 4 today, but equaling 9 tomorrow is a problem for the trustworthiness of math. If math is incoherent, it's meaningless. It's irrelevant. The lack of coherence, it's very, it's coherence itself that makes math and science so effective, right? It's that there's a predictable pattern of rediscovery that you can add. I can take two apples and you can give me your two apples and we will get four today. And then tomorrow, if we do the same thing, it will still be four. But if we did that today and then tomorrow we got nine, we would go, well, man, some good math is, right? The math doesn't seem to add up. We search for, co- for coherence. And the problem here is that this retribution principle doesn't seem to be working. The math doesn't add up. Is the first rule of life that there are no rules? <laughs> well, if that's the case, then maybe I should just try a bunch of things that might at least give me the sensation of pleasure. Ah, the teacher has experience in that regard, too. <laughs> That could be a conclusion someone gets, right? They're reading the teacher in Ecclesiastes and they go, well, it seems like the teacher is saying, seems like wise teacher is saying that uh, there isn't a predictable, repeatable pattern in life. See, it's broken here, it's broken here. Okay, so if that's the case um, and I don't want to die, maybe I should just pursue a bunch of things that give me the sensation of pleasure. Maybe that's the alternative, right? Which is certainly a temptation that would be running through anyone's mind who's experiencing meaninglessness and despair, whether that was an ancient Israelite or whether it's you today. When we feel a sense of meaninglessness, feel a sense of despair, of insignificance, there are several paths at our disposal. The one of which, which probably is the most common, is the pursuit of pleasure. If I have to exist, and if I can't find meaning, well, I'm going to do what feels right, because what feels good is better than not feeling good. So I will pursue pleasure. In Ecclesiastes, the teacher tried that too. Read chapter two, right? I mean, actually read it. I mean, maybe it'd be helpful uh, for you if you aren't driving while you are listening to this uh, if you are not operating heavy machinery while listening to this, it'd be helpful maybe for you to actually open up and read Ecclesiastes to see what the teacher has to say about this. I'll read it for you. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, planted vineyards, made gardens, parks, and 
planted all kinds of fruit trees in them, made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well the delight of a man's heart. <laughs> I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. And yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Huh. Pursued all of the sensations of pleasure, even some things that seem pretty noble. Hey, I'm going to build a garden and, you know, a park and plant fruit trees. You know, there's nothing wrong with planting a fruit tree. It's not exactly on the same level as having a harem for yourself. But, uh, you know, planting a fruit tree. That seems pretty good, but he was doing it as a pursuit of pleasure. Maybe this will provide him with a sense of meaning in life. Nope. <laughs> he tries that. He says it's meaningless. So, I'm struggling to find, as the teacher, a sense of coherence. Is there a coherence? Is there a predictable, repeatable pattern to life which would give me a purpose and then I can find my significance in it? Okay, there's a problem with the retribution principle. It's not working. Well, if that's not working, maybe I can just do whatever the heck I want to do, pursue pleasure. No, the pursuit of pleasure for the wise teacher. Remember, even in, as he's saying this stuff, he's saying, I retained my wisdom. So he was kind of doing this as a thought experiment. He's still doing this. You know, he, he's not He's not giving in totally to just saying, you know, I'm going mindless on this, but he's doing this as an experiment on himself. And this is what he found. The pursuit of pleasure lacks the logical coherence necessary to give purpose and significance to one's life. This isn't a coherent game plan. This isn't, you know why? It's chasing after the wind. Verse 18, I hated all the things I had toiled, toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they'll have control over all the fruits of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So I, my heart began to despair all over, uh, over all my toilsome labor under the sun. Like, I gained all this stuff. I got rich. I was loaded. I had so much wealth. Then I realized, I'm going to die, and this is going to go to somebody, and they might blow it. <laughs> Meaningless, right? It's pointless. And this is actually a really crucial point to get from the wisdom of the teacher in Ecclesiastes. It's not just that the teacher is experiencing cognitive dissonance as he tries to sort of like impartially evaluate whether there is a discernible pattern to life that would provide him with a clear sense of purpose and significance. No, that's, that's not it. It's not just that he's like surveying the propositions of life. He's not just evaluating philosophical propositions and going, these don't add up. The math doesn't work. 
and I have cognitive dissonance. Not just that. If I can, like, borrow some language here from the behavioral scientist John Verveke. He's the one who's actually, as far as I know, coined the term meaning crisis. Came across him from uh, Paul Vanderclay, who I've had on a couple of times, lo- and love the work that Paul's doing. Um, and he's had John Verveke on a few times. I've listened to many of John's lectures. And John, um, though not a, not a Christian, uh, has provided me a, with some language that's really helped me even understand um, my own Christian faith better, which has been really helpful. John talks about different kinds of knowings. I shouldn't say him on a first-name basis. We haven't even met. I should say Dr. Viveki, Viveki to be proper here. Um, to use language from him, you know, Viveki talks about different kinds of knowing propositional knowledge, right? Propositional knowledge is knowledge proposed to us in the form of propositions, of statements, right? So I might, for example, not me, I'm married. Let's do a different thought experiment um, here. Uh, Let's say you go on a dating site, right? Some sort of matchmaker site. And you see, I don't even know how these work. Those were invented long after I was married. They probably exist before then, but I don't know. It was barely doing email when my wife and I got married. You go on one of those sites and they they tell you a list of interests, um, maybe even features. Again, I don't know how these work. Maybe they tell you their height and their weight, how much they can bench press and squat, and they tell you their interests, the things that they have interest in. That would give you a propositional knowledge of that person. But would you say you know the person that you saw on the dating website or the app? No, you you wouldn't say that you knew them fully. You would say you had propositional knowledge. You had knowledge about certain propositions about them. And as we've known from the new Geico commercial with Pete Nokio, you guys seen that one? Pinocchio shows up on a date after a dating app and she looks at the phone and the phone says, it's got this picture of this you know, ruggedly good-looking man named Pete Nokio, and she looks up at him, and it's Pinocchio, and she goes, Pete Nokio, really? He's like, you know, that was a professionally taken photo. The The propositions that she had uh, about Pete Nokio uh, were not accurate, right? They were false propositions. She came to discover that as she came to a participatory um, knowledge by actually interacting with the person that she's sitting across. So that would be very different. You go on some dating website, you get a bunch of propositions. That's not fully knowing, right? There's other layers of knowing. And one other layer of knowing is participatory knowing, participatory knowledge. So if I but maybe borrow those concepts from Verveke, the teacher in Ecclesiastes isn't just evaluating propositional knowledge, about God and the structure of reality. He's not just doing the math and getting an error sign on his calculator, though there is some of that. He's looking around, surveying these experiences of life, computing them and going, error does not compute, right? The, the retribution principle doesn't add up here. The math's not working. He's also pursued participatory knowledge by giving himself to fully participate in different experiences of life, And he's relaying his results based on those experiences. What's the result of his participatory knowledge based on his experiences of life in pursuing pleasure, in accumulating wealth, 
The result is, he says, well, this is an insufficient structure to support coherence, purpose, and significance. The structure of reality, as I've experienced it in the pursuit of pleasure, if that is the purpose, it, I, in the end, I am insignificant. And on top of that, the structure is not even coherent. It's not even coherent because he's also seen the wicked prospering and he's seen the righteous. This is the result of his participatory knowledge in these experiences of life. Now let's get to, back to Nathan's question. Nathan is right in his question. Nathan, who asked the initial question that we launched this podcast on here today, this episode in. Ecclesiastes is deconstructing something. What is Ecclesiastes and the teacher deconstructing? Ecclesiastes is deconstructing simplistic dependence on the retribution principle to govern the world. Again, this is we talked about with Job. You go back to that full episode I did on Job several months ago. This is in harmony with the book of Job, where the conclusion of Job was that karma, the retribution principle, doesn't govern the cosmos, because then karma would be God. God governs the cosmos. So this is actually in keeping with that deconstructing. What needs to get deconstructed? Ecclesiastes needs to deconstruct that karma runs the world. It also needs to deconstruct that in the absence of sufficient evidence to think that karma runs the world, if you think that a better alternative is the pursuit of your pleasures or hedonism, that is also insufficient. He's deconstructing both of those things, and which is necessary. It feels negative. That's why we don't hear many sermons on Ecclesiastes and church, right? Because it feels like such a negative book. But a lot of that is just tearing down necessary things that need to get torn down. It's a necessary deconstructing. But is there any positive reconstruction in Ecclesiastes? Is there any positive reconstruction in Ecclesiastes? Yes. The teacher does see in life some coherent patterns which can provide one with a sense of significance, a sense that life is still worth living. That's the ultimate question behind our individual sense of significance. Is life still worth living? The, uh, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is struggling to find coherence. He's finding some coherent patterns. He's also su suggesting that the retribution principle and karma is not a sufficient, sufficient description of reality. It's not a sufficient description of the coherence. It's actually, if we were to just base the world and whether the reality is structured on karma, the teacher of Ecclesiastes says, no, that would be incoherent. It doesn't add up. If that's the math, and there's some days where it's 2 plus 2 equals 4 and other days where 2 plus 2 equals 9, that math isn't working. So it is. Karma is largely incoherent. It's deficient. It's not completely coherent. If that's the case, if you're still struggling, if you can't find the pattern to get everything to, to somehow fit together, if you can't make sense, all of reality, is life still worth living? 
the 20th century existentialist philosopher Albert, Albert Camus famously said, quote, there is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy, end quote. In Camus' day in the early 20th century, scientific materialism, philosophical naturalism had painted a world that if following the logical conclusions of the, the essential meaning-making questions of naturalism, one may conclude that life is utterly and totally meaningless, that you're nothing more than an accident in a caught as a cog in a mindless machine of cause and effect. For Camus, the question would be that if this is true, if this incoherent universe, the, the, pattern, the very patterns of math and science, those coherent patterns point us to an incoherent universe, the absurdity of that universe, in the face of the absurdity of that universe, do I continue to live? Is life still worth living? That is why Camus said, this is why suicide is the one great philosophical question. Is life worth living or is it not? And in the face of existential crisis as people, in the face of the deep questions about God, think of even the people of Israel, the questions about God, the Torah, and everything they had believed about their purpose as a people and their significance, all of those questions that emerged from having your home in Israel destroyed, being hauled off into captivity, experiencing the, the cultural collision of Babylonian and Persian and Greek gods and their values and philosophy. Is life still worth living for the ancient Israelite reader? Is life still worth living for you? As you struggle to find how does life make sense, this is why we, I spent, I've been spending so much time in that Problem of Evil series, because evil and suffering are the most disorienting experiences to our mean, sense of meaning and significance. It's the most disrupting experience to our sense of that the world is operated under some sort of coherent principles that's governed by God or that there's some sorts of logic, coherence, not only for us to figure out if there's purpose in it, but we need to be able to discover those coherent patterns so that we could find how we as individuals can participate in the overarching purpose. And, 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 and suffering disorients those. It calls those into question, especially suffering as tragic as a kid in elementary school being killed in a school shooting or and undoubtedly the children that died, having never committed any of the atrocities that their forebearers had committed, right? The things the prophets had warned about, the prophets that warned about building the high places, the, the places where human sacrifice happened outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. There were kids in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar rolled into town and sacked the city. Those kids hadn't done a thing wrong, and yet they were killed. What in the world could be the purpose? What's the pattern? These kids didn't break the covenant, right? You're sitting in Babylonian captivity, or you're sitting in 
21st century America feeling alienation and you're feeling a sense of what is, I can't figure out the, the Christian story. Where does, it, where does it fit with all of the suffering that's happening in the world? I don't even think this is why like Darwin's theory of evolution was so disorienting and pro- pro- provided so many challenges to the Christian story because Darwin's language was about struggle and survival of the fittest and like Tennyson said, a nature that's red and tooth and claw. And it goes, whoa, this doesn't seem coherent with the biblical story. In the face of existential crisis, is life still worth living? The answer for the ancient Israelite and the answer for us today is still yes. There are many affirmations of the goodness of life, even when we can't find the overarching coherence, even when we can't find the patterns, even when we thought what was running the world and how the world is supposed to work gets disoriented by new information, when the math doesn't add up, even when the struggle to find patterns of coherence in the face of doubt and suffering arise, the teacher of Ecclesiastes affirms that life is still worth living. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 12. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, two to lie down together. They'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Right? Both of those examples in chapter 3, chapter 4. What, what is the teacher confirming? What, what is he saying life is still worth living for? Life is still worth living. I know there's nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live. You can't figure it all out. You don't have a brain big enough to understand or possibly fathom. Yes, there's incoherence and there's statistical anomalies in this retribution principle. It doesn't work all the time, but that doesn't mean just because it doesn't work all the time and that life can be random and chaotic. It's not worth living. Be happy. Do good while you live. (laughs) Find companionship. Find a spouse. Two lie down together. They'll keep warm. It's good, right? This is good. This is good affirmation. Life is worth living. Chapter five. Here's another affirmation. Chapter five, verse 18. Here's some more positive reconstruction, right? The teacher says, uh, chapter 5, verse 18, this is what I've observed to be good, that it's appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot, be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God 
They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with the gladness of their heart. Mm. Eat, drink, find satisfaction in your work, guys. You got few days of life. Few days of life. <laughs> few days. It's worth living them. Enjoy what you have to eat and to drink. Find satisfaction in your work, right? If you get blessed with a bunch of possessions and wealth and the ability to enjoy them because you're not sick or, you know, have some chronic disease, accept it. Enjoy it. Be happy in your toil. It's a gift of God. Don't spend your days waxing nostalgically about the good old days, right? Because life is short. The life that you've been given is a gift. The gladness of your heart should keep you occupied, right? Chapter 9, verse 7. Here's another one from the teacher. Another affirmation, a positive reconstruction of where you could find significance even as you struggle to find perhaps coherence in the world. Verse 7, chapter 9. Uh, going through verse 10 here. Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All of your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you're going, there's neither working or planning or knowledge, wisdom. Man, that's beautiful, right? It's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to read, right? I'm married. I've got kids. And these days are going quick. They're going by real quick. <laughs> you know, I've got an 11-year-old now. My wife and I, we've been married for, you know, almost 14 years. We're not, not as young as we used to be. And we're already, like, it's hard to believe, but, you know, while our kids may still feel young, we realize that only in a few years, they're, they're going to be out of the house. Like, these are the days that we have with them. I can't figure it all out. You know, and this is this is an encouragement for people out there that you, you guys are like me and you probably are in some way. That's why you're listening to this. And you're just you're trying to figure out you want to lead the examined life, right? You don't want to mindlessly follow a pattern or what somebody said is a coherent structure of the way reality works and it's actually wrong or false. You don't want to do that. So you evaluate and you critique and you're trying to figure it out. And this is all motivated by a desire to to live in the world the right way and to know the truth and to find purpose and significance. But you, give, you can give all of your attention to that. You can give all your attention to that and forget, totally forget what's right in front of you. Eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. Enjoy life with your wife. Ladies that are listening to this, enjoy life with your husband whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life that God's given you. All of your meaningless days. I love that he throws that in there. Just in the end, right? Like just, you're not, you don't have the computing power 
to figure this all out. That doesn't mean you throw it out, right? Because the teacher is giving us wisdom from the wisdom he's acquired of trying to figure out life. So we don't throw it out. But what's he say? Just in, enjoy the gift in front of you. Because where you're going, right? He says in the realm of the dead, there's not working or planning or knowledge or wisdom. Man, so, so good. I think, man, Ecclesiastes is just... I'm so glad you asked this question, Nathan, because it's given me time with one of my favorite books here. Ecclesiastes 11. How many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. Also in Ecclesiastes 11, you who are young, be happy while you are young and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Mm. That's why even as parents, it's like we wrestle with how, how much do we, how much do we put on our kids to prepare them for their future while not overwhelming them with that preparation because they're only young. They, they're only young once. The days of your youth, you know, you're in high school or college. Man, how do you balance out like preparing for your future and giving yourself to whatever you might be studying or doing for work and then the reality that this is probably the only time in life in which you're going to get to stay up to four in the morning with your friends hanging out and having a good time. How do you how do you balance those things? The author of Ecclesiastes is maybe offering some encouragement, which is a good counterbalance, right? He pre- prevents he presents some valuable wisdom for those of us who just whether whether it's those of you like me that just you can't seem to turn off the switch that has you seeking to understand reality, God, and life. For you and me, his exhortation is this. The teacher exhorts us in Ecclesiastes, you won't figure it all out. (laughs) You're not going to figure it all out. You're not going to figure it all out. The pattern is ultimately beyond complete categorization. You won't figure it out. The wise teacher didn't figure it all out. He goes, I know the retribution principle, and this is a paraphrase. He doesn't use retribution principle one time, okay? This is the term we're using. I know karma doesn't work all the time. We're not going to throw the whole thing out, but it doesn't work all the time. Is there a different pattern? Is there a way to like figure out the algorithm of why suffering hits some people that are righteous and why some people hit the the lottery and the jackpot when they're wicked and horrific terrible people and they end up filthy rich and they marry beautiful people and they're, you know, they're just wonderful. It seems like their life is so wonderful. And we like to think, no, they're secretly, internally really, really upset and they have some hurt inside, right? And the the truth might be, no, they don't. They might not. (laughs) They might just be totally fine being rich and don't have any cares, right? That might make us feel better, but it might not actually be the truth. And, and, the teacher goes, you're going to try to figure out that pattern. You're going to try to figure out, all right, well, it's not karma, but maybe there's, maybe there's an equation here, right? 
you know, it's an equation that helps us make sense of why two plus two equals four on Mondays, but can could equal nine on Tuesdays and could equal squirrel on Wednesdays. And if I figure out the algorithm, maybe I can, he goes, nope, the pattern is ultimately beyond complete categorization. He's not saying throughout wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom, that's not the case. This is why the teacher is able to tell us things is because he's pursued wisdom. But temper that with the realistic expectation, it's always going to be be beyond categorization. And while you're doing that, don't miss out on the wife of your youth that's right in front of you. Don't miss out on the days of your youth that are here today and gone tomorrow. There is always unmapped territory to reality. We cannot map it all. This doesn't make reality totally incoherent. But in your tireless pursuit of the future gain of wisdom, or for some of you others, you know, might be you have this proclivity to to accumulate material wealth. If in your tireless pursuit of the future gain of wisdom or material wealth or prosperity or security, if you miss the gift of existence, which is right in front of you, you've failed. Listen to Ecclesiastes what the teacher says in Ecclesiastes 6. A man may have a hundred children and live many years. Like that's a good thing in the ancient ancient Near Eastern culture. Like, hey, you have a lot of children. Way to go, dude. Live many years. That's pretty awesome. Life expectancy is pretty low. You probably should have died because of some plague or because you didn't have enough food to eat, right? If you had a hundred children, live many years, sign of doing something good, right? Job had a lot of kids, right? That's a good sign. Okay, let me get back to the text here. (laughs) A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity, does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Whoa. The wisdom of the teacher is that if you pursue all of your life future acquisition, sacrifice the now, sacrifice the now, sacrifice the now for the future, sacrifice the now for the future, sacrifice the now for the future, and you don't ever enjoy the now, the prosperity of the now, you're better off never having been born. That's the question of significance. The question of significance is, is it better for me to live? And to that, the positive reconstruction that the teacher gives is that you cannot perpetually sacrifice the now for the future, a future you may never get to. And in doing so, if you do that, you are actually rejecting the gift of God, which is to exist at all. That's right in front of you. And if you reject that gift of existence, it's better that you would have never been born, right? Or in this case, a stillborn child, you know, to use this, this this exact language. Much of the wisdom of Proverbs and Psalms is there to remind us that to reach a future good, we must sacrifice some good from the now. You want to be prosperous and not poor. You're going to have to work now. What is that? It is a sacrifice of the now for the future. And that's a good thing, right? Proverbs tells us that all the time. Do this, you know, you got to build a house, you got to 
use your money wisely. You got to work hard. Don't cheat people, right? Don't cut corners. All of these proverbial nuggets of wisdom are about what you need to do in the now, which is going to be a sacrifice of some of your now to secure a better future for you and your children. But without the counterbalance of Ecclesiastes, there's a real danger that we perpetually sacrifice all of our nows for a future ideal that never comes. And this is why we read the canon of scripture. This is why we read all of the wisdom literature. This is why Ecclesiastes isn't the only voice, but it's an important voice in the story. This is why you cannot just read your Proverbs, chapter of Proverbs a day and have life all figured out. Because while that's good, again, it's providing you with the normative mode of being in the world, which is work hard. You're going to have to sacrifice some of your now for the future. Author of Ecclesiastes goes, the teacher says, hey, but listen, if you do that all the time, you're actually rejecting God's gift of the now to you. You're rejecting what God has given you in this moment. And in doing so, and in doing so, there's a real danger that one, if you perpetually sacrifice all of your nows, you may have done that for a future that never really comes because you're not in control, buddy. (laughs) This is not how this works. You can't game the entire system. You can't, uh, you can't figure out the algorithm, right? You know, the, the thing might hit you. It could, and that's not even saying like God wants that for you. All right. But you don't know what the future may hold. You perpetually sacrifice all of your nows for that future. It's a waste of your life. Simultaneously, we keep that in balance. There's the tension with that in Proverbs, right? That in Proverbs, which is like, hey, if you sacrifice all of your future for the now, when you get to that future, you're going to be miserable. Finding purpose, okay, so we've been talking about significance. Significance is the why do I stay alive, right? What why individually should I stay alive? Some positive reconstruction that the author of Ecclesiastes gives the teacher. He goes, hey, stay living now because God's given you a good gift. He's given you food. He's given you wine. Go have a drink with your wife. Right? Go have a drink with your wife. Enjoy some of your youth. You've worked really, really hard. Enjoy some of your labor. Chill on the Dave Ramsey's courses for one moment. Go take your wife out on a date. Wives, go take your husband out. Uh, young people, enjoy some of your youth, right? Don't live like an idiot. Keep the book of Proverbs in mind, right? But you give every single night of your college years to, you know, toiling, toiling, toiling away. And those years are totally gone. And you never sat down when you were 21, you know, and just enjoyed the company of your friends, you know, in some way that's not destructive to your life, you've missed out. You've missed out on some of the now, the gift of the now, which is right in front of you. But what about finding purpose? Finding purpose comes with an awareness of the end telos by which we are pursuing, by which we should be pursuing. But we must hold that sense of purpose We must hold that alongside the awareness of the gift of life that is before us right now, knowing that the moment is fleeting 
transient. And this is where this is so helpful for us as followers of Jesus today. We who believe, we have these propositions, and right now they can only be, in a sense, propositional knowledge that we've received about how the story is going to end because we couldn't, we can't participate in that fully. So we accept some of these propositions by faith. And then we're called to live in the world a certain way, bringing about the kingdom of God. But it's not just a future kingdom, it's a kingdom that is here and now. And we make sacrifices for that. We make sacrifices for that kingdom all the time. We participate in Christ's suffering, right? But Christ, as a model even for our own life, didn't just spend, he didn't just, wasn't just incarnate, you know, as a baby and then go to the cross. There was a life to be lived in front of him in which he went to weddings and turned water into wine and he dined with sinners and he ate with his disciples. And I have to imagine he had a few laughs in there too. I have to imagine there were moments of pleasure and enjoyment that it wasn't always perpetually a sacrifice. Simultaneously, Jesus wasn't hedonistically pursuing pleasure, but keep in mind what he was accused of by the Pharisees and religious leaders. He was accused of being what? A drunk and a glutton. (laughs) So there had to be at least some evidence there by the amount in which Jesus enjoyed the gift of the incarnation of life that, you know, he only experiences one time, right? This is not, Christ is, uh, you know, God comes in the flesh one time, right? This isn't a perpetual thing that happens. We don't believe, as in other traditions, like in multiple avatars, right? So that experience was one, and he, I, I know there was this, this balance of enjoying that with the sacrifices that were to come before him. We have to hold alongside the end telos by which we're pursuing and the sacrifices that come with that. We have to hold alongside the awareness of the gift of love that is before us. The teacher does positively affirm the importance of knowing God's purposes for humanity and the end telos. Keep in mind that he reminds the reader of the end. Look at uh, Ecclesiastes 11 verse 9, even part of that admonition, right? We already talked about to you who are young. Verse 9, chapter 11 verse 9, you who are young, be happy while you are young. And let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eye sees, but know that for all these things, what? It's the telos, it's the purpose, it's the end. God will bring you into judgment. There is a a sense in which eschatologically, there is a sort of retribution that happens. How we participate in the world in the here and now may not always add up, but in the end, God sets all the wrong things right. And so we need to aim towards that. There is an overarching purpose, a destiny we keep in mind that what we've been given to us is a gift. And part of this, you could say this judgment, right, is when we get to that day, the evaluation of how we have received what we've been given, how we've responded to what we've received. In the final conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a sort of editorial note, right, where 
the narration moves away from the words of the teacher to the one who has comprised the sayings of the teacher into this book. And what does it say at the end, the final note? Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Verse 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. In the end, Ecclesiastes doesn't affirm that karma runs the world in the here and now. It doesn't affirm that the retribution principle works all the time. But what it does affirm is that even though we might experience instances of injustice, of unjust suffering, where the wicked prosper and the righteous the righteous seem to suffer. We have a trust that God is just and righteous in his final judgments. This is very different than trusting in karma. This is very different than trusting that the retribution principle runs the world. The conclusion of Ecclesiastes calls us to trust through the words of the teacher, to trust that God is just that God is running the world, to call us to live in keeping with his intentions for the world. And what does Ecclesiastes show us as part of his intentions for the world and how we're to live in it? That we are to also receive the moments in front of us as a gift. Thanks for listening today. I want to thank Nathan for supporting on Patreon and for asking such a great question today. I want to thank all of those in the Deep Talks Patreon community for your support. I, I'm so uh, sincerely appreciative of it. I'm thankful that you guys see what I'm doing as having value, value enough to, to give of some of your hard-earned money to support the work. If you're interested in becoming a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community, you can find a link in the description to this podcast. I welcome your participation and support. There are even tiered rewards if you feel like there's particular things that you could see on that list that would be helpful. Uh, some of these Q&A episodes, like the one we're doing, are often uh, episodes that I'll do exclusively for those that have been supporting on Patreon. So if that's something that interests you, uh, I welcome your support. Another way you can support is by leaving a review on Apple Pod Podcasts or the other podcast platforms of your choice, but especially Apple Podcasts, as that's still the number one way people are listening to podcasts today. So thanks to those of you that have left some review of some sort. It helps other people discover this podcast and um, come, to, come to find this work that I'm doing. If you'd like to connect with me with questions, observations, even disagreements that you have with things I've talked about in this podcast or with other guests, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. I love talking to people. That seems to be, the for me, the easiest format to keep track of. Or uh, for those that do get involved in the Deep Talks Patreon community, you can always message me there as well. But I, I love hearing from you guys. As of right now, all I'm doing is talking into a microphone in my uh, office by myself. And it's really hard to gauge <laughs> as I'm doing this. Unlike when I'm teaching or preaching or uh, leading people in worship, whether or not that what, what, whether or not what I'm doing is of, of help in any way, shape, or form, or whether or not people have questions or objections, 
hard to do in this format. So the only way I can know is if you guys reach out to me. So I'd love connecting with you and hearing from you guys. Again, even if you have stuff that you go, I don't know about this. Tell me about it. You know, uh, it's, I'm, I really value uh, open and nuanced conversation with people that's non-combative. And even if we have difference of opinion, we can both learn in the process. So feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. I always leave a link for um, that in my description as well. Thanks for listening, guys. Until next time, we'll talk again soon.